Uh, I'm Janice Forsyth. A very warm welcome on behalf of BAFTA to this beautiful venue, uh, the Corinthian Club, and this extraordinary room that I don't think I, I've been in before. Um, really pleased to have you here. A nice mixed audience. Very young. Hooray! Uh, no offence to anyone older. I'm in the older age group, so I'm criticising myself. Uh, and I think a lovely mix of people. Um, can you give me a cheer, don't be shy, if you're involved in makeup, if you're uh, a makeup student or in, in the business of makeup? After three, one, two, three. Excellent. It's good to know the audience. And um, obviously, you know, BAFTA members or anyone who's here who's you know, a non-BAFTA person or working in makeup, perhaps you might know more. But I think most of us, we absolutely love movies. And we maybe have insights into certain aspects of the business and the craft, but isn't it great to have a real nosy uh, behind the scenes and get an insight into what is actually involved day to day? So that is what we're going to get. She said, building them up. No pressure on Donald. Um, so Donald is, he is a real uh, high flyer, Donald Moat, um, in the business. He was born in Montreal, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we can claim him as a Scot because both his parents are Scottish. Yes. Yeah. And he lives in LA now. We forgive him that, but that's for, for the business. Um, and he's been in this industry, hard to believe, for, but for around 30 years. Recent credits, feel free to woo, uh, include makeup department head and designer on Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Stronger, Sicario, Nightcrawler, <laughs> Prisoners, The Fighter and Eight Mile, and dot dot dot, personal makeup artist, for Daniel Craig <laughs> on uh, Spectre and Skyfall. And as well as those blockbusters, Donald, it's interesting because you know he also works in other uh, aspects of the business in indie films, as well as in theatre and editorial as a consulting makeup designer. Beyond that, um, he served two terms on the board of the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television. And I think this is great, successfully lobbied the Academy to recognise makeup artists with the annual Canadian Screen Award. He's a long-time BAFTA member, and in 2012 he was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up, a big Scottish welcome for Donald Moore! <laughs> of what we're about to do now. Um, you're back in Scotland, so does, is there a special dimension to this, this well, trip then? I think so. Do you know, I think it's like anything when you go back a little bit or you, you feel nostalgic a little. My mum and dad are you know, a little bit older now and they're at home and in their late 80s. But I think they felt even a bit nostalgic that here I am and at the age I'm at, being back in Scotland. My cousins, I have a cousin here tonight. But my mom's youngest brother still lives in Calendar. My father's from Stirling. My mother's from Calendar. I think it it feels very, and I'm familiar the sound of it. Uh, yeah. And it doesn't make me sad. It, it's it's uh, you know, but nostalgia sometimes can put you in a funny place, maybe. Um, but I'm very happy to to be here and, and to to meet such nice people and and. And the weather's good. The weather's good. <laughs> oh, it's probably chilly compared to LA, but so. Tell us, first of all, um, how you came to be in this business. What, what led you to it? Do you know, I think it was really just being very interested as a kid in, do you know, I think we all find things if we love films, and I think anybody who's, who's here, whether 
it's the music in films or the clothes or the, the art direction, you find things that you pick apart. And I was doing that. But I was also an odd kid. I mean, just going to movies and watching things, but being really interested in certain things and starting to, to recognize the names or the actors, the people. And I saw a very beautiful film when I was maybe 11 or 12 with my dad, Barry Lyndon. And the look of it and, you know, that sort of, it was Anne Brody designed that makeup. It's still, to me, it's a Kubrick film, one of the most beautiful films, period elements. But as, you know, I mentioned earlier today, I had a drama teacher at school and I was a shocking student. I mean, I can't lie, I was really, what was going to happen to this kid? Um, and I had a great drama teacher who was from my dad's hometown, Sterling, and he was cross and very stern, like the kind of schoolmaster we imagine. It's very, he was sort of a male version of Gene Brody. <laughs> and he took us to the theater, and I, I think we had to do little projects, you know, as you do in school. You make this and you do that, and somebody's mother had the Avon bag, and I had to make the kids look older. You know, they're 13 in a, in a play that meant, was meant for 40-year-olds, and suddenly putting baby powder on kids' hair and drawing lines, and it was, just something, and people said, you know, you know how to do that. And next came, you know, the Corson's book, and, and you start getting called and perfect, or try to perfect a craft. Yeah, because now, um, I guess, makeup students here, there are more courses available now than there would have been then. So the, presumably there wasn't a clear career path for you, even you know, though you seemed to know early on you were, you were hooked. I think, I think you just need mentorship, and that's what's so important to me. Uh, whether it's BAFTA in London, we do the Guru, they do it here in Los Angeles. BAFTA have made a huge impact because everybody just needs someone to help them. It doesn't matter where you live. I mean, really, you could live anywhere in the world if you want to make films and you find someone who happens to do that particular job you're interested in and they're willing to help you. That's really all you need, more than a course. That's my personal philosophy. And that's so that's still the case, I think, absolutely. I think it is. The courses are fantastic, but they're not everything. It's mentorship is everything, especially in film. It's, you know, it's not a two plus two. It's not a science, really. Yeah. Um, and I think it's getting that experience from other people, um, along with everything else, yes. academically reading what you can. And, yeah. and the schools are fantastic, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. So take us back, what was the first proper professional job in screen? Was that television or film? Well, in, in television I was very lucky because I knew that I was still quite young in Canada that they were doing a very uh, kind of uh, famous Canadian storybook, Anne of Green Gables, which was a world famous book, and that it was being produced as a co-production, which would have been a British, Canadian, I can't remember, US maybe, and they were looking for people, but at the time, the makeup designer said, I don't want TV makeup. I want these people to look um, like the farmers of Prince Edward Island. And at that particular time, the makeup was transitioning in film and television just about everywhere, and we had to be brought in and take a test, much the way BBC used to do it, where you'd have to do a makeup on a couple of people, and they would decide if it was appropriate or camera right for them. Because really in the 80s, if you, if you think back a lot of American production, the period makeups were way off and too heavy and too glamorous. and So that's really how I got passed through. And 
started working on the first Anne of Green Gables and then was moved up on the second one. And I think my first film was a really terrible film called, it was a Meatballs, a franchise film of Meatballs. Do you remember those? Really terrible films. But there was someone quite tricky to work with and I think the department head had a, a problem dealing with somebody and they said, get him to look after that one. And I was the one sort of pushed out to do it. And that sort of started it for me. That, that's something I wondered about, about how much the balance is in your job, um, where you're literally, the stars are in your hands. Mm -hmm. How, what the percentage is, if you can delineate it that way, between the craft and just being a nice human being and having empathy and knowing how to deal with people who presumably are quite fraught. Mm -hmm. I always think everybody's frightened. You know, I've learned in the beginning, you're always frightened. I mean, when you're starting off, and am I good enough, and, and nervousness, and insecurity, and, and I think people have it, they just don't admit it. I could admit it. I remember working on a film where I nearly did probably get the sack with um, Martin Sheen. Now, he won't remember this, because I've asked him 30 years later. I worked with Martin Sheen on, on The Departed, but Mark Wahlberg and Leo DiCaprio, and I did go up, I said, Mr. Sheen, do you remember me? You know how you think when you're very young that people will remember an event the way you felt that was such a tragedy in your life? And of course he didn't remember. Because he said, what, did you have glasses on? Or were you, did you have a mustache? I went, no, I was 19. Um, but I did work on a John Schlesinger film who was a pretty remarkable director. When I think back, I have no idea how lucky I was to be the junior in the makeup department with Martin Sheen and this incredible cat, John Schlesinger directing this film. Some of those people were very strict, but it wasn't me. I really, because now we don't do it. We're, we're so, I'm particularly now that I department head with the studios and HR, we, we can't, you can't really even reprimand people anymore. And I think the work is suffering because we're not, everyone has to be great. Everyone's a winner. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets a star. Do you know, and that's, I think that's hurt the business a little bit. That's interesting, because that takes us back to that teacher you were talking about who was very stern, oh. and we were saying, I think we're all the same. If somebody, if you, you learn a lesson, you never forget it. If you're being reprimanded for the right mm -hmm. reason, you learn so much from that. That's right, but that's if, right. if you're just fabulous all the time, you're going to learn nothing. Well, and I think that there's a kindness in it, maybe. And yeah. I learned that in Hollywood, because you do believe it. After a while, people say, oh, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. And you know, you think, in LA, they say that about everybody. <laughs> and so there is a point where you feel, has something happened that people start to believe their own press, whether yeah. it's the makeup artist or the costume designer or the actors. And I mean, some people really have, have they've drank the Kool-Aid, as we yes. say. Yeah. That they, you know, they believe the Oscar does make you the best. It's also interesting mm -hmm. to think, as you say, I love that, you know, everybody's scared, basically. I remember yeah. hearing something, I don't know if it was on radio or television, but Nicole Kidman talking about, being the star of a film, and so told her, I said, oh, how fabulous. But she was yeah. talking about the first day when she has to yeah. go onto that yeah. set, and everyone's looking at her. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's why she gets paid all the money. But, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. one can empathise with that. Right, let's talk about um, stars and working with them with uh, Daniel Craig. Uh, we're going to move on to uh, Skyfall 2012, uh, directed by Sam Mendes, and you also worked with Inspector that's right. three years later, same same director. So how did this, was this the first time then, working with Daniel as his personal makeup Well, I've met him, um, I felt quite by accident, Jim Sheridan was directing a film, 
uh, and I met him in New York, and he'd asked me if I had met Daniel Craig and that they were doing a film together. <coughs> and there was some uh, tricky little makeup things, and he'd asked me my opinion and would I meet with Daniel. And I thought he'd have someone with him that would come from, presumably from London, and he didn't. And he was sort of, uh, I think, quite keen to meet with me. And I thought, well, that's great. Um, and so I met him in New York. He said, I know we will, what did he say to me? He called me up, it was very funny, because he just said, hi, is that Donald Mueller? I said, yes, Daniel Craig. And I mean, I think there's also, a, I, um, the one thing I do tell a lot of people who'd like to work with actors, and you know, they're just people. And I think the more I treat people like it's just this guy calling me, yeah. um, make it much more a comfortable situation. That when he rang, he said, I know this will work, and you've become, you've been highly recommended, but I just need to meet you face to face. I mean, it'd be crazy not to, just to get the feeling of who will be in his personal space yeah. 14, 15 hours a day. But we got on right away and we did a couple of films, Dragon Tattoo. But he did ask me, would you like to come and do this Bond film with me? And I said, I'll let you know. <laughs> you know, because it wasn't on my bucket list. It really wasn't, a, it didn't feel like a challenge for me. I still like to think of myself as a filmmaker and not getting caught in the world of, it sounds like a really high class problem, but it was a, a moment for me where I thought, well then you get into that and, and not doing other films that might have challenging makeup, and, and yet this was challenging, and I'm really glad I worked on it. So he, he was very much part of the process, wasn't he? Very much, we came and had a meeting with Sam Mendes, I met Sam Mendes um, while I was filming in Los Angeles on The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and what they really wanted to do with Skyfall was, was really, I guess in order for Sam Mendes to direct the film, they wanted to make it more cinematic than other Bonds, and maybe more based in reality than, than the traditional Bond films, which meant having a kind of character evolution for Daniel, where he gets shot, he looks pretty messed up and roughed up, which they'd never done on a Bond film. They'd always been, to me, a kind of a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And that's okay as a genre, as a style of makeup, but I think this was really something they were concerned, that the franchise, could you do this on a Bond film? And seemingly you could. And they loved it, and I loved working, I loved being able to work with Daniel, this, you know, because he, he looks great normally, we just had him looking so fraught and tired and really did a transitional makeup on him. I mean, that's not the traditional Bond, but that's I think... That's not Roger Moore. That's not Roger Moore, or Sean Connery, or any of them. But it was the Bond for many people that was the most human. And I think it, it lent to a kind of credibility. I love making him look so bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to think about, because I think your eyes growing up, you makeup artists, you spot the names in the credit list, and I would tend to think of it as being, you know, making the stars look beautiful. Right. But you are right across mm -hmm. the range of possibilities, don't you? I like that. I think, you know, there's plenty of people who can do looking good, which is also treated very lightly, I think, by professionally, by people who, who just do beautiful work. Mm -hmm. But character work is also very beautiful. And I think to believe Bond, um, there's something in it. I don't know. I, I'm less interested in working on films that are strictly, I mean, even with Tom Ford, strictly about an aesthetic of beautiful. Because what is that? Yeah. It's changed so much. 
And uh, yeah, and I think it's also interesting. I would probably look at that and think Daniel Craig, you'd be watching it, but you wouldn't be, that's just a pack fluted moment in the film. Mm -hmm. You think, yeah, it's a little bit rough. It wouldn't occur to me probably to think about you Having making to, that happen. Right. Well, I mean, that's eight days of beer time. I mean, I know, like, it's really funny. It was seven, eight years ago that to match the beard stubble, we shot over seven months. That's eight days. I have it in my head. How would we do this? How could we shoot within the shooting schedule that the first AD and Sam Mendes had approved, that the studio approved, the time allocated? I mean, there's a lot of semantics. Wow. And, and that this was eight. Because I remember there was one day that Sam Mendes said, I'm afraid we're going to have to go back and pick up one piece. And I had to lay the hair on, and I thought, I'm going to kill you. Um, <laughs> because it was a shot in Regent's Park in London where we had to lay it on. And I just thought, I can't. I just don't know if I can match it. And I think people who, who are outside of the field of makeup would, would not even think twice. I mean, people do that kind of work. And uh, it takes takes a minute, takes some skill to do. And so we did that, and I think it was, um, do you know, it's nice that it's not noticed, but somebody did say to me, oh, I had no idea this unshaved, but it actually helped me get another job because Blade Runner was very much a whole thing about beard stubble and, and levels of it, and it's a huge part of makeup. Yeah, and that's just the women. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, nocturnal animals you mentioned, so we're going to turn to that next. Um, uh, 2016. Uh, Tom Ford, as you mentioned, who was a surprise director for so many people when sure. he made that move. He's known as a you know, fashion stylist, fashion designer, perfumes, all of that, Vanity Fair covers. Uh, I think people were maybe a bit sceptical about how good, he, how, how good he would be, sure. what his vision would be like. But he certainly does have a vision. Who was it? Seamus McGarvey was the cinematographer on that. So what was the, the brief for this film? It was really a, it was difficult. It was a challenging project because Tom is, is so visual and he knows exactly what he wants everything to look like. And he's really an architect more than, I mean, I think more so than just a fashion designer. He was trained as an architect and he really sees the makeup um, with those eyes. And every character, um, Aaron Taylor Johnson does not look like that. And we talked about how we would sort of come up with characters that were believable and natural and the kids. Um, this took a minute because he, he felt that everybody should still, there was a quality, an editorial quality about them, but still to look menacing and to change him up without using teeth or any prosthetics because he didn't want it to be a joke or that sort of, you know, Americana hillbilly when you see these guys in films. Mm -hmm. He still would be an attractive guy, there's a style to him. Yeah. But I'm, and I, Tom really should get the credit for, he thought up the facial hair, I was going a different route, and Tom really thought that up, and, and I think it was really interesting because every character in the film um, had a look, and he just let me try everything, and very rarely does he get too involved if, if he feels it's in the right, mm -hmm. the right zone. So initially, tell us what happens with, with Tom Ford. I mean, does he say, this is what I'm looking for, and then do you go back with a mood board or something? Well, I would, with Denis Villeneuve, I use a mood board for every character. With Tom, he'll beat you to the punch. Right, okay. You kind of think, wow, well, you know, he's just one of these people that you think, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to pull it off. Because he's OCD, and I'm OCD. And I think that what happens is if you start to kind of get to that point with him, he will just 
snap his fingers and show you another image that will sum it up. So he showed me, the way he sold the film at Cannes was a visual presentation on an iPad and that he, he showed that to me. And it was really very, very nice because he said, no, just don't say anything. 10 minutes, I promise you. Quite like a child, you know, showing you the school project. And he was very proud of it and I said, I won't say a word. And he held up his iPad and he started like this and showed me every character. And I had the movie in my head and we, I pretty much knew everything he was looking for. The large women at the start of the film, he just said to me, and I love, I love it, I think it's one of the best things I've ever been able to work on. And he loved them so much. There's some big misconception that he was somehow, uh, you know, not uh, featuring them in a positive light and I actually felt it was quite the opposite because he had me treat them like the biggest movie stars on the planet and he loved those women and cast them. But he would say to me, it's this color, so the body makeup would be, he's so specific. Um, so a mood board wouldn't help with him, but uh, the character work, the, the prosthesis for Jake, when he, the eyes gouged out, he pretty much left that to me, because he would say, you know, that's, I don't want you to fire me. You know, tell me if, if, if it's in the right zone. And I think he has a tremendous respect for people like Seamus, who will then say, you know, this is how I would do it. Yeah. And for that count, your eyes being gouged out, we're yeah. into that area of, sort of yeah. specialist makeup. Is that, how do you learn how to do that? Well, when I did, you know, Jake, I've worked with so often, I mean, even there, I, I know his face so well, and I know what he likes and, and what he doesn't, and Michael Shannon, I've known him oh. since his first film, which was Eight Mile, and we shot that in Detroit with Eminem oh. 20 years ago. Yeah. And Jake, I know that he'll try anything that will make him better. If he feels makeup is very much a suit of armor, if it's something, and we had to work with the beard as well, so he, you know, that was also another movie about facial hair, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but the eye, I mean, I think we went through a lot of, you can do things through your research, and I did, we had a couple pieces sculpted, but sometimes the simplest uh, prosthetic work or effects work, I think, optically is the most effective because I know when I see things that make me feel kind of sick. Yeah. Uh, they're often very simple. You know when you cut yourself or things that make you kind of feel queasy, that's how I feel the audience would react to Jake and he's such a good actor that we didn't need to like, cut his face off uh, but enough that you knew this yeah. was bad and the heartbeat and that yeah. whole sequence. But Tom was unbelievably collaborative to say let me do one test. And he, when he saw it, he said, that is great. Fantastic. And never you know, bothered with it again. Jake Gyllenhaal, I mean, you've watched them a few times. It's Apart from it, what, what a face, or a Coupon Donald, as we say in Scotland. <laughs> that's he's right. Coupon, but it's, he's, he's just, although he does theatre work, but he's got a face that's made for the screen. Yeah, it? absolutely. He's so, I think he's always a very watchable person. Uh, from the first time I worked with him, you know, he can be quite challenging. I think he's a very watchable actor. Uh, you're quite compelled. Yeah. And he's able to do that, but he really uses the makeup to his advantage, whether we're doing contact lenses or a dental piece. There's something that he'll find in the character, certainly stronger, we did it with contact lenses. Um, not to the degree of Johnny Depp, you know, and that's fine for Johnny Depp, but it's an extreme. You know, I think with Jake, it's finding 
elements of the makeup or the hair or something that helped him uh, without it being, oh, that's Jake Gyllenhaal in a makeup. You know, that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And are you guys in makeup, are you always one of the, some of the earliest people to be on set because you've got so yes. much to do? And that's annoying. It's so annoying. <laughs> but, he, you know, he came up with a system on Stronger where he said to me, you know, can't we just do it like really quickly? And I said, how quickly? And I do think that people also, uh, there's, when you know someone well enough that you could sort of make them up standing up, and I think that I in the film was the biggest job we had. Stronger was a little more complicated, um, but we don't mess around. I yeah. mean, we just, you know, if we say we can do this in 20 minutes, we do it, and the producers love it. I bet they do, I bet they do. Yeah. Time is money apart from right. anything else. Um, you mentioned Stronger, but let's look at um, Sicario next. 2015, Denis Villeneuve, right. uh, French-Canadian. He, is he Montreal? No, he's, he's from, um, he is from outside of Montreal, yeah. quite far in the country. Um, but based in, he's based in Montreal, where I grew up. Yes. So this is an American crime thriller. I'm sure many of you will see the amazing Emily Blunt, uh, Josh Brolin, Benicio Del Toro. Um, it's an incredible cast. So. What was the challenge here? Well, the challenge, um, it's really interesting because when I think back on it, it, it's a challenge in that she, Emily, had just done this huge Tom Cruise film. I can't remember the name of it, but it was a big action, I don't know, action film. And it was a little bit kind of, as someone said to me, she looked very manufactured. And, and I, would say, uh, I would say it to Emily, and I did say it to Rosette. What are we doing with this, mm -hmm. Sicario? Denis, so Denis called me up and had asked me to work on the film in New Mexico, uh, but I had just seen Emily in this film, and I said, but I don't think I'm the right guy for this because it feels like she's a bit glamorous and a little done, and he's not that kind of filmmaker. I mean, for the narrative, it wouldn't work, mm -hmm. and there was something about her in this film that just made me think, maybe you need someone else, and he went, no, 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 no you're, you need to do this, and, and you need to meet her, and she called me up, and we spoke about it. And I think what, what was her you know, I've always missed this film, so I've only seen clips. Well, so she's an FBI drug enforcement agent, and what I love about Denis Villeneuve's films, I mean, as a producer director, this film was written for a man. The lead role, number one, was meant to be a man and a movie star, and I thought, what a stroke of genius for Denis Villeneuve to put Emily Blunt to also play American in this film. And she did, an un, I think, an unbelievable job. She's really gifted and arranged uh, to be this young actress of 32 um, to come to the US and do this film. She doesn't have a natural American sound, no dialect coach, no nothing. I was very impressed with her and her physicality. Yeah, she's another one with a, a face you can just gaze at. It's around, unbelievable, yeah, unbelievable. But I guess that can maybe get in the way sometimes if you're looking for more of the character. I think it can. Exactly, and there was a period of time where people were being, I think you've noticed where there were films for quite a while where leading men or leading ladies who were very beautiful or kind of that, what people perceived as very beautiful, were suddenly playing character parts and vice versa, and it kind of, I think, ruined the business for a minute because we were losing the character actors who were starting to become leading ladies and men. Um, and 
and you know, putting funny noses on and a hump on their back to be a legitimate character actor. And I found it really annoying. Yeah. But she really is a leading lady um, with character elements. And we looked at FBI women, and I, I thought she was pretty remarkable. It's that incredible this. intelligence yeah, that, yeah. that shines through. Yeah. We've all got a crush on her, basically. I think. <laughs> There's a lot of sweat in all these films, isn't there, too? Well, Sakara there was, but what was very difficult, I didn't realize in that kind of desert of New Mexico, it evaporates. And it was very challenging for me um, because I started to think about it. Anytime I've been in, the de in New Mexico or Arizona, is you know, when you see films, certainly when I was a kid, in the westerns, they're always sweaty. It's not really how you look at all, because it evaporates. Yeah. And I learned that, and, and so we sort of decided that it's more about a shine on people. John Bernthal was really, it was a fun makeup to do, because Denis lets me just figure that out on my own. And, mm -hmm. and I like to work without a lot of interference from the studio. If you end up on a film, a kind of Marvel movie, you're working essentially by committee. And they get very difficult, you know. To you have to have the right personality to work on those types of films. X Men, they're run like studio films, and I think working with with Denis on this type of film, they're still run like an independent. Yeah. You know, where it's more collaborative, and they really trust your judgment and your experience. It's funny because I was at an event the other night at a local theatre. It was Patrick Doyle, who's from Scotland, right. twice Oscar-nominated composer, watching many many sure. movies. But he said an interesting thing, which was. Um, for him, making a movie and coming up with the score, most of the time, he said that 20% of his time is taken up in the actual composing, mm -hmm. and 80% is all the other stuff surrounding it. That's so I was right. quite struck by that. A parallel in your job too? Because you, I get the impression you like to cut through all of that stuff and go on with the job. Well, you know, you, it's not for everybody, and there are people who work on films where they're so caught up in in concepts and, and test audiences and what people look like and what's attractive and what's not. It's really, it's, it's kind of alarming what's happened. And there are films that are made that way and I think you do spend a lot of time taking meetings, having meetings, to have a meeting, to have a meeting, yeah. to have a meeting. And I just thought, well, I can't really explain it other than if I'm working with Denis and the producer and Prisoners was a huge makeup concern because and this, to be fair, was because of Zero Dark Thirty and Captain Bigelow's film, they were afraid that Denise's film was maybe um, kind of talking about torture. And, you know, people are very sensitive to that sort of thing in films. And, and he decided that the Paul Dano character would be severely beaten, uh, whereas in Zero Dark Thirty they didn't do that. They intimated that there was some torture. And I think it was a political statement being made of what's been happening. Um, and a little bit in this, because this, this is really dirty business, and a lot of people didn't like the message this film was sending about drug enforcement in America. Uh, and Denis really likes to challenge, uh, you know, but we were, it was, it was very tricky, and, and sometimes you have to be careful, because these makeups have to be approved by the studio, that they may feel they won't even put that in a poster for a film if they feel it's sending a message. Do you know that's pro or anti? And Zero Dark Thirty raised some eyebrows. I think Prisoners did as well. And Sicario, and this is drug enforcement yeah. in America on the Mexican US border. It's not right? topical at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I presume that Denis is somebody who will fight his corner and your corner up against that sort of committee mentality. Do you know, I think he will, and there's a few people that I've had the great fortune to work with that will do that, but it's very difficult when you're, you know, I know friends of mine who are working on other projects that I really feel for them because their hands are tied as far as, you know, people will say, why did she look like that in the movie? Or why did he look like that? And the clothes and the hair and the makeup and, you know, the, there, there are committees of people, I and mean, how annoying is that, that are um, experts. And I had an experience recently where they sent me a script for something, I won't work on it. But I did say to them, you know, uh, the only sort of analogy, I, and they'd asked me, why don't you want to work on this? And I said, look, I went and had root canal done. And I went to the dentist, and he said, you need this because of that. Therefore, you need to get this done to help find doctor. Thank you, how much? Um, and you do it. Do I say to the dentist, who's studied for nine years post-secondary, do you think that's the right way to do it? <laughs> so I feel a bit, you know, the accountant, if he tells me there's a 2432W2 you have to claim, do I call him up, a chartered or her, chartered accountant, and say, do you think that's right? <laughs> so how is it when I do the makeup after 30 years on an actor who's chosen to work with me and a director, that you would ask me to come up with another option? Yeah. And I think there's a, uh, some friction a little bit in the industry now where people are feeling a little controlled by the studios or a lack of respect, maybe. Yeah. And there's also, I don't know how recent, there's a lot of actor power, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Your producers as well? I think when they're producers, and sometimes it's great because you will be on jobs where I have worked with people who are producer, actor, star, and sometimes, you know, when they put the producer hat on, things are very different. Yeah and they see it from a different perspective. Or I did have it once where somebody said to me, why does it take X amount of time, and it was a long time, to get this particular person ready? And I said, well, you're a producer now. It's because this person you know, is a certain age, they need to look younger, they need this, they need that. And you as a producer have also encouraged that. And so, if the audience are looking to see everybody a particular way, you as the producer signing the checks also have to make a decision of how you want films made. And they were quite startled because they'll come to us and say, why does it take two hours to get this person ready? And sometimes three hours. Yeah. But there was a time in Hollywood and in London where you would hear people took two and a half, three hours to get ready. Now it's all about if it's more than an hour and you think, well, I understand the concern, but the costumes still have to be made, the sets still have to be built. So there is a pressure, and I do miss working on smaller films, yeah. because at least I knew what I was getting into, mm -hmm. that you couldn't do ten makeup tests, you just had one, and you, you basically filmed what you got. Yeah. Oh, God, it's yeah. fascinating. Right, let's move on to uh, stronger, difficult stuff and very sensitive. Mm. Uh, we were talking about Sicario, where you have to be, have a sensitivity here, I guess, even more so. It was a really special film. I, you know, I always tell, I was very disappointed how the film was received. It was a, a, a really great experience for me, one of the best. I always say that, you know, you, you can't help it, you know, you just want for the filmmaker, for the producer and the director, and the powers that be who've taken 
a lot of time and money and commitment, often for years, to make something. And this disappointed me because I love the experience and the people and we all stay in touch and the man that it's based on. And I felt terrible for them that the film was so poorly received, critically well received, but you have to make a couple of bucks. You have to, to cut it. But, and the losses were so huge and it was so disappointing, particularly for Jake who produced the film and David Gordon Green. And I think um, for the rest of us, we got to just work, I think, some really great things in the film. And Jake was disappointed, and, and I think Tatiana Maslany was incredible, and we had you know Miranda Richardson. I think people worked unbelievably hard, and I just felt badly that it, it, there was very little recognition. Uh, and that's the only time I think awards matter. Mm-hmm. Our films that won't necessarily make money um, to cut losses, but it is a business. And I think a couple of nominations would have been, I think, good for the film a little bit. and. It was hard for them, and very hard for the man who the story was based on. We always forget, I think, where the story came from. And Jeff Bauman, who lost his legs in this horrific, um, it was really horrific thing that happened to him. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met, and it was his story, and I think he he gave a lot of himself by by letting the film be made. You know, and the people who have suffered any kind of post-traumatic stress. Um, but maybe it was too soon, and you know, people talk about marketing, and it's things I don't really know enough about. But it's very disappointing because I see firsthand how much everyone's done. And mm-hmm. we made the film in five weeks in Boston for very little money. We really gave a lot of ourselves, and Jake particularly, um, you know, did a lot. People cut salaries. Miranda Richardson had no dialect coach. I couldn't even afford a contact lens tech. Jake wears his own lens, so he was able to do it. I mean, we really were were um, cutting the fat and really had a very you know minimal crew uh, in Boston. But I really treasured the experience. I mean, the technicality of making that wheelchair you know, had to be modified so his own legs were behind. And then we put the shrinkers on. And I had a very minimal prosthetic budget, but I still found a way to do it that was beneficial. And everybody that worked in that hospital who were there working with all the victims of that, all worked with us, and they were working in, in crowd and VG. It was really fantastic to be with everyone um, in that hospital. All these guys, they were all part of it. And had you done much of that kind of work before? A little bit. When I first started, I was a trainee on the fly, and so, I mean, I know enough, I've worked enough around it, but to build, we had to build three sets of, of leg, um, prosthetics, the stumps, um, and then the CG factor. So it was a real marriage of makeup and CGI, which I'm becoming very familiar with, and, and it kind of got me ready for Blade Runner because this was a marriage of, of the two departments, and I loved working with the visual effects people on this film. Who could erase Jake's legs? And then there's a couple of scenes if you get to see the film where I think it worked really well without, you know, when they're changing the surgical dressing, we do have the appliance on. They're very simple. Yeah. Um, it was effective, you know. Yeah. Again, I guess that's the joy of it in a way for you, if people don't even think about it. They don't notice it. That's right. I mean, when people try to find things, I mean, when I look back, I can see that he sits too high up because he's quite tall, and you can, you know, uh, there's a difference, and he had to be readjusted. 
quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably all struck just by you know, his power. Um, does, I mean, clearly you were working against the clock in this one. Well, do you know what was interesting with that is the nurses that looked after Jeff Bauman we had in the film, and I made them up, I think, the first or second day, and I wasn't sure which way to go because I didn't have a lot of time, and there's a usual look you see in films where it's always pale. It's, but I thought we'd go with this pallor that was kind of yellowy-gray and and sticky and sweaty and morphine. And the nurse who looked after Jeff Bowman came up to me and she said, that is really what it looks like. And I was so moved by that, that the woman who, this nurse who really knows her field unbelievably well and looked after him, yeah. because this was a big part of his issue after it was his addiction to, yes. to um, opioids. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, for the, the makeup students of here, is that something where you, you build up experience, but then, you just have to follow your instinct and, and, and go with it? Well, I think it's absolutely, and it's such a great thing to ask because people always say, well, it doesn't really look like that. We had a man once talking about how to hold something, and you think, no, 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 there's a point where the audience don't really care about that. There's certain, uh, um, you know, hysterical accuracy we had to really utilize in this, what he looked like, what the amputations, I mean, Dr. Kaddish, I would call him, I sent him some pictures on my phone, and we'd done little videos of what the legs would look like, and he said, that's it. But there are other times, there are little things where they'll say to me, well, we just did Neil Armstrong with Ryan Gosling. Well, people will say, well, Neil Armstrong didn't have a mole on his left side. I mean, I think there is a point of hysterical accuracy that no one remembers. Nobody knows really what they look like. You're trying to get the essence of it, and I think People who are learning makeup, it's very important that if you're doing a kind of recreation, you also have to sell it, and you have to make it cinematic. I mean, real bruises, if you, you know, bang your leg on the side table, that doesn't really photograph the way people think bruises should photograph. So you have to train your eye to shift it a little bit um, and make it more interesting. Yeah. I mean, with common leaps and bounds, I don't know any of you guys probably say this, you growing up watching, back in the days when there were lots of... Uh, old movies and tell, sure, few sure. of them now, apart from the Talking Pictures channel. Um, and it was always a laugh to see how his historical pictures, they always looked like the time that it was being made. So it would be medieval, but they'd look all 1950s. Sure. That's yeah. really annoying. Um, we've gone beyond that now, haven't we? Or, or do we just think we have because we're in the present time? Well, we've gone behind, I think, beyond it visually. I think we're, the actors have to take a little heat here, I think. Certainly, in America, there's certain styles of acting that is not really something that they do. do. You know, and British actors always love American actors because of their naturalism, right? They always will tell you, "Oh, my favorite." But there's also something in some types of actors, particularly in the period stuff. If they're a certain age, there's just something about it I don't buy. And you have to have the consultants there to tell people how to sit up how to remove your hat, you know, because it does make a difference, yeah. right? And there was someone recently, an actress I worked with years ago, who really hated the film recently, and we were talking about what we liked and what we didn't, and she said, oh, for God's sakes, if you don't know how to smoke, don't smoke in a film. <laughs> and I realized what she meant, there's a kind of a phony, uh, uh, something kind of like kids playing yeah. when they, they don't sort of do that right. Yeah. Betty. That's right. Um, okay, so let's move on to Blade Runner.
And mm -hmm. she's completely pink for a start. <laughs> and that's not CGI? Well, the only thing CGI is the size of her has been increased. This is a sore <laughs> spot for me because I remember when the film came out, people started saying, you know, how did they make her pink? And I thought, oh my god, people think she's CG pink. And it's still a practical makeup. So it's it's you know, it's one of those arguments, no argument. It it just annoys me a little bit that I think we have forgotten there's still a practical element in filmmaking. And there are makeups that you still actually have to do. And I remember because this drove me insane. And I nearly lost my mind. And that I had to get the contacts done and get her pink and go to Roger Deakins and say, what color of pink? But it, it's very interesting that here we are now, 2018, and when I saw the clips for this, when the film came out, and I even read articles that people were talking about the complete visual effect of this character. Well, she's a visual effect in that she is projected on the screen as a, a, a counter shot of Ryan Gosling's coverage. Um, so that is technically, is it a fact? Roger Deakins shoots everything in camera. So we shot her, and now they've made her larger and projected her on a screen opposite Ryan Gosling. This is tr actually his coverage. It's his scene. So the interesting thing that happened for me in this was a lot of, I learned a lot because many things happened. It was her makeup, which would play essentially with him, but we've already shot her that's done. But the pink was a big discussion, and that it was nude, and that it, you know we had to change the hair color. Um, the eyes were a big. They were worried that her own eye color made her look too much, too human, or too much like Joy. And he wanted it to have a certain element. So it was very much a. Uh, it took a minute to come up with, and the pink was very difficult to get that color. I, I can't even remember why anymore, other than I think I've bought everything I could from every company. And there's the Blue Man Group, yeah. um, who played here for years. And I remember thinking, what are the Blue Man, what do they use? And I knew, I remember reading something or hearing someone in New York telling me. And so I bought the same makeup and thought, I'm going to do it like the Blue Man Group, pink. And so I marched off to Hungary with these bottles of pink. It was an airbrush. We only did one final seal of airbrush to give it a, a slight, trans well, kind of pearlized finish. But the actual makeup was three of us with, on all fours, with the incredible Anna de Armas, who's the nicest, easiest person to work with. She was happy. quite happy to stand there, and we just, you know, did our pink, and we changed the hair. The hair went from pink to this bluey color, just for the contrast. It's my favorite shot in the film because Ryan, this was a very difficult um, thing to shoot. Everything was wet, it rained. The, the bandage came from kind of an idea of mine from Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. I, I've got a, a kind of a mood board that I had pictures cut out and Denise came in one day and there's also a, a Belgian cartoon, graphic cartoon that he liked where the guy had these sort of strips of things on his face and I had the Jack Nicholson, and Ryan is really un unbelievably uh, incredible guy to work with. But he said, what are we gonna do? There's, it's gotta be a momentary thing. It's as much a, a feeling, and we, he laughed because somebody said, what do we do for continuity? And I said, I don't think it matters. I think it's a moment, it's a fantasy. 
and continuity is for sissies. And, <laughs> and they all went with it because we didn't really know what to do other than we thought it was this. Yeah. And Ryan was so terrific and we did it. But when, the, when I ran all the blood and I thought, oh, it's going to go pink. And there was something so fantastic and it felt like an homage to, to Marvin Westmore's makeup and the original. And it just all kind of happened, maybe by accident, but I'll take all the credit. <laughs> and I loved it and I loved the look of it. It's, it was a pretty special moment, and I think the guys, really, it's Roger Deakins, that was the moment in the film for me, that all the aspects of the, the uh, makeup and cinematography and visual effects with everybody, all that kind of work and hours put in and worry and headaches and anxiety for everybody came to a kind of a perfect moment. And it's only ever happened and once or twice I've ever seen that. Because um, I think we're all about ready to kill each other. I think by the time we got to this. And, because yeah. I think starting off from that project must have been a level of anxiety because of such high expectation or maybe low expectation of like, what are they going to do with this? That's uh, right. Decades That's right. on from the original. But did you go back to the original? Do you, do you want to reference it in any way, but you're doing something fresh? What was the approach? I was a little too terrified. I think we all were. I watched the original uh, while I was on Stronger, uh, maybe an hour into it, half hour into it, and I just thought, what's the, we're not making Blade Runner 2. I mean, we're making Blade Runner 2049. It's not a, you know, I didn't want to get caught in that because you can really, I think you can make a lot of mistakes. It was terrifying. I really worried a lot, and, and I called Denis one day, and I met Ryan, and I met all the cast, Robin Wright, everybody was great, and. There was, the stakes were so high, and the producers I worked with on Prisoners, I could see it in their faces. You know, you, what I love about this business is you learn how it is for other people. Because when you do makeup, or when you do costume, or editing, or sound, you think your job is the most important job in the world. And I'm sure, you know, radio and television, anybody thinks that. But I realized on this job, we were going to have to stop and and he called me and he sent me a picture and he said, what do you think of that? And I said, oh my God, why am I? I said, I'm terrified. Marvin Westmore, who created the makeup, is you know, highly, highly respected from the Westmore family. You kind of think, oh my God, it's like everything. And I started to get this feeling like this is not a good move. And I told people, this is really worrying me. But when I, I went to see Roger Deakins, who's a good friend of mine and a cinematographer, and he said the same thing. And I phoned Denis and I just said, I'm really, really anxious about this. And he said, so am I. Yeah, I'm get over yourself. <laughs> and I did. I got over my bad self. And then I decided I wouldn't look at the original. We didn't talk about it, except for a couple of characters. Edward James Olmos, who comes back for a brief uh, cameo. And uh, we didn't. Ryan played the music, Vangelis, the first day and I think we all decided we don't need, they made an amazing yeah. film and we need to make an amazing film. Yeah. And that was the end of that. We shot everything, now when I look at it, it was really difficult because we shot everything out of sequence and I think that, you know, it's one of the things that I think, I, I may have lost my mind a little bit because the thing with makeup, I, mean, I rely on Joe Walker, the editor, to have whatever we printed and that Denise signed off and saying that's what we're using what will end up in the film, but you have to backtrack. And we shot so out of sequence 
that I really I worried a lot about matching because that's 90% of the makeup artist's goal is, you know, as people here who do makeup or anything in film is about the, the continuity and the, I think that worried me so much that I would make a mess of it. And, you know, you see it projected on a huge screen and you think, God, that's, that's a huge thing. And, and I think when the film was over, I kind of realized, you know, I really kind of, you know, shouldn't have worried so much. Um, but it's what we do. And, you know, when I see people who tell me I'm really concerned because I can't make this work, matching makeup, particularly out of kit wounds and effects and blood and water and sweat, is people get caught. I mean, you can, it can actually compromise a shot. And Joe Walker's a great editor. And occasionally you'll have to say, can we, you know, can we match it? We had a couple, I don't mind admitting it, there's one a sequence I was very concerned, Dave Batista, the big guy, uh, who was also in Bond, we had to age him, and it was conditional of his casting in the <coughs> film. The studio thought of him as the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy. How do we put him in this film? Um, with one of the girls, I think there was a little issue with, we talked about sort of a Japanese influence in her hair as a replicant, but then people start to think, well, does that mean the replicants have that kind of hair? And it became, you have to be careful, yeah. because people start to think, oh, she's the replicant. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a continuity issue with her hair. Um, I don't think they tweaked. I thought maybe in post they might tweak it. It's very expensive to go back. But if the fringe changes, I mean, those are things that happen. And there's a little bit there. And I thought, <laughs> um, a couple times with Ryan, I thought we were going to get caught. You know, you've got to make choices. And I think we got away with it. Yeah. There's a couple of things you think, oh my god. But it's, it's tough. Well, that was another BAFTA nomination for you, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. You got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Would anyone like to ask a question of Donald? I know that you've worked on things like PDAs and sci-fi. Where do you get all the research from? Like, do you like to work from books or photographs? or? Primarily books. I'm not... Uh, I'm trying to stay away from internet searches. Yeah. Because then you get very strange very strange spam when you research for a film. But I think you also lose, you know, when you go into the meetings with all the designers, costume and makeup, and that everyone have the same photographs. I mean, that's what's happened. So I think really books going into bookshops, I mean, if they still really exist for yeah, much longer. They do. They will. Do you know, but you, to pick yeah. up, because we have so many references in Blade Runner that came from various books. Um, Crazy Horse, the girls that danced in, in the Paris Club, that's where she really comes from. Mm -hmm. So I think having the books that when you all present your research, that we all have different images. There are some jobs now I've been on recently where everybody had the same pictures. Oh, that's amazing. And it's just they've done the search, they print them. And you know, it's a little bit, you know, I was working with Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones, came to the US and we were doing The Darkest Minds, and she does a little cameo, and I thought, well, how do you research Gwendolyn Christie? I mean, she's six foot, you know, the only photographs online are her in, in Game of Thrones. So people were cutting those out, so it doesn't work. I think you have to go to museums, original pieces, and find your own, the magazine clippings, um, but going, I mean, especially when you live at a place like Glasgow or Edinburgh, London, I mean, museums, mm -hmm. incredible. Um, 
the period stuff is really difficult, especially if it's really early. I mean, luckily in European uh, cities and, and here in Europe, the UK, you can get it. In North America, you can be really trapped for certainly earlier works. Um, take a lot of research. But I, I would say, and also film, I still really reference a lot of films. Directors like it, if you're able, I just worked with Dan Gilroy again, and he kept referencing The Exorcist for this film we did with Tony Collette and, and John Malkovich. And I thought that was a great reference because I, I kind of remembered it. So I'd say, you know, really books and, and films. Good question, great answer. That's, no, that's fascinating to think of just that revelation that you think the internet is all out there but actually it's quite a narrow focus if there's a bunch of people looking for the same that's right yeah, yeah. that's very interesting yeah. museums second hand bookshops paintings do you have another question anybody yes hi what would you say is maybe the biggest challenge that you've faced oh for work yeah for work <laughs> <laughs> There are challenges. Well, do you know, I would, I would say Blade Runner in terms of a film, but I've had, um, I've had tougher jobs in many respects. When the actors are willing and, and you've got people who are really happy to be there. Um, I would say the one I just finished, The First Man, in a way was more of a challenge. Um, this is the Neil Armstrong? Yes, I felt that was more of a challenge. Because I, I like to work based on reality, I think when I'm a little frightened to work on recreating historical characters, it's not my, I don't feel it's, it's my niche or the genre I'm most comfortable with. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles, no one admits that there's something they don't know. <laughs> but I think there's a point where I'll have to say to people, it's really not my thing. And then I had a moment recently where somebody said, you know, if they remade, and I was fascinated as a kid with Mary Queen of Scots, I was really fascinated to a bizarre obsession. But somebody said, well, what if they made a film, would you? And there was, for a moment, they were going to make one. And then they told me who was playing, and I just thought, well, why am I worried? I mean. You know, there's that type of casting. Has anybody seen Rain? There was a television series. I mean, you know, so it's, I think it's getting trapped in your own fear of something. So I, I'd say the challenge of Neil Armstrong, I found Ryan and Neil Armstrong as opposed to Ryan and Blade Runner was far more of a challenge, I think. Well, somebody was, a student recently was asking me, you know, how you make the move to the big time. I mean, because I don't know what that means, the independent films. I think the quality of the work is often better. There's some, you know, I was thinking about recently the film Moonlight, and um, there was that other one last year, The Florida Project, I don't know if oh, they called it, right? There was something about all those films to me that were really independent, I mean, they made them for a nickel. I think the quality of work, for me, is often, I don't want to say better, and you know, people get upset, and what about this, but there's something about working on an independent film where I know I can go to the actor and say, look, I don't have that kind of budget. Like, you can't have the teeth, and you can't have the wig, and you can't have, because people do come to you and say, well, how about this? And everyone will have a request. And you may have a budget of a thousand pounds or dollars, and you're talking about films that have half a million dollars for makeup. I mean, you know, The Darkest Hour, it's spectacular what they did, but you know, it cost, a lot of money, huge amounts. So 
of some of the films being made. I mean, certainly in the UK, uh, throughout Europe, and some really, really very clever work is done with very little. Moonlight is a great example because I think they did it for next to nothing with no prep, and they won the big prize, didn't they? Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great question. The only, um, in the principal actors, the only wig uh -huh. is on, um, so when they have the, th the three of them together, mm -hmm. Mackenzie Davis, she's the only one in a wig in the film. Mm -hmm. um, Sylvia, the replicant, that's her own hair. The, the one with the friend, the dark, that's her own hair. Okay. But it looks a bit wiggy, right? <laughs> No, it does, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's it looks sometimes real hair can look wiggy. Yeah. It's really funny to me how things that are real and, and I feel that way with facial hair sometimes on men that they're really somebody having a true mustache or a beard look kind of store bought. Yeah. Right? Um, but I would say human hair almost always. Well, no, I take that back. Like setting wise, like would you find like the I think. I think depending on the period, because I just realized on something I was talking about with someone in New York where if they had all their hair permed, I mean, mm -hmm. why is everybody trying to face this challenge of period hair where they're using wigs that are not permed? Yes. You know, especially when you look back at the earlier days where everything is quite perfect mm -hmm. and um, you can't really always achieve it. And I think synthetic, on certain things, it works better. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I'm going to ask, um, sometimes in the film industry it's very hard to cross over, for example, if someone's working in uh, factual and they want to do fiction, it's quite hard to do that. But then the makeup, um, uh, the makeup artist, do you feel like sometimes, let's say, if you were wanting to say, I want to do character work and I want to do SFX, I want to do this, mm -hmm. is it quite hard to cross over or is it? It's a terrific question. I think it is. I think it. It used to be, maybe now you have to make sure that the resume, what I love being, when I see people who are junior or working on their first films in the crowd tent, is getting to move around. I think it's a fantastic experience to be able to work on a period job where you're doing really sort of exquisite, clean uh, period work into uh, real life, you know, gritty, dirty, I mean, accurate work and fashion work effects work, but what happens is if you're, as you move up and you become a chief or a key or a supervisor, people look at resumes and it's a, a lot of judgment. The actors who approve will go, oh, forget it. The directors will look, and you know, it's not, um, it has changed because if your resume or CV are sent to the studio as a designer, I mean, people will say right off the bat, that's not the person, and based on the jobs they've done, and it's, people don't always understand it's just makeup. Well, it isn't. If you've been a costume designer and all you've done are period films, then this tremendous contemporary piece comes up, chances are they're not going to hire you. Uh, it's, a, it's a bankability thing too, isn't it? And trust. Which is why I think it's very important to work in between. I've always, even when I've been a personal for someone, I've always worked on smaller jobs that maybe don't pay as much or show people that you really actually want to be doing other things mm. and mix it up. Great yeah. advice. Thank but you. But really, it is really important because people will ask me how to step up 
to something else. Like the Marvel movies are really character driven. But if you come out of, say, training on a Marvel film, I'm just using as an example that you've worked on, you know, people who've worked on a Marvel film then see a very small film, they really feel they could make the move as a designer. The production, they think you're not, um, you're over management. You do too much paperwork. Does that make sense? Um, and more practical. And I've had that happen on the Neil Armstrong. They were very concerned with our Atlanta crew being working on too many sort of theme films and then working with Damien Chazelle who likes a very calm, quiet set, no phones, no photographs, um, a, a very grown-up atmosphere, you know, from films that are really kind of high excitement. Yeah. Impressive in one so as well. Yeah. Uh, good. Time for one final question. Hello. Hello. Um, what departments would you say that you work like most closely with, or does it vary by project project I felt it used to be more costume and production design. I'm not feeling that as much anymore. Hair, makeup, depending on where you're working, where people are doing both, sometimes one or the other. So it's really just in some places, as you know, um, in France, Mexico, Canada, the US, it's very separate. I think it, it's separated even more. There's less collaboration, maybe. The stakes are higher, maybe, and the departments have become bigger. Um, I know in America, and it's now happening in the UK, HR, this sort of head office business, um, running the department, safety, health and safety, have been put on the designers. And we're finding it very challenging that you're on a film where you're also worried about, did you take your first aid course? Do you know CPR? That does fall on the heads of department. Uh, I would say props we work with quite a lot. But more than anything, I would say visual effects. Um, it's kind of a marriage now. It was fraught, you know, there were a few years and you've read about it, there's been some people who haven't done so well with the, the merge of sort of makeup versus visual effects. I just try to work with everybody. Um, but it does take a minute because yeah. sometimes there are characters being created by visual effects and I think performances are being enhanced a little bit and that, I think there's a, the actors feel a little bit of animosity towards visual effects the makeup sometimes feel it, and um, their bedside manner wasn't always the best. <laughs> and I think that shifted a little, that they're learning you know, to work with us and scanning people. Uh, but I would say, yeah, visual effects, absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, great questions. Um, the good news is there are drinks at the back, not just water, there's some wine too, um, which you're welcome to have. If you get time to, to hang about, that'd be great. But really, it's been an absolute joy. Um, given everything you've done, you have a great bedside man. Um, doesn't it? Um, just so generous with your time, really thoughtful answers. Uh, and we could have gone on for another hour talking a bit about films, but I think that was terrific. So please join me in giving another big Scottish thank you and round of applause.